When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, Donald Trump making his case in court and not ruling out violence if his cases move ahead. The former Trump White House lawyer Ty Cobb is out front. And federal investigators looking for four bolts crucial to securing the door plug that blew off that Alaska Airlines plane. Were they ever on the door in the first place? I mean, it's an incredible question. We go inside the investigation as Boeing calls an all-emergency staff meeting. And the Pentagon finally revealing what sent the defense chief Lloyd Austin to the hospital twice, even as the president and his own deputy were in the dark. Will the explanation be enough to save his job or make it worse? Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, Trump threatening chaos. The former president warning today that if his prosecution continues, very bad things will happen. I think they feel this is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. It'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. And Trump's actions actually match his words in this case because he chose to spend his day in a courtroom in Washington instead of on the campaign trail in Iowa. The first votes, of course, of the 2024 election are just six days away. And Trump was not in Iowa. Now, this is be very clear here. He did not have to be in court. He chose to be there uh, so that he could make the case to a courtroom and to the television cameras there. I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. Of course, that argument is not very simple. I mean, the three-judge panel hearing the case were skeptical today. I mean, Trump's team tried to say that Trump would actually be immune if he had ordered a murder while president. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal but prosecution. So there's back and forth about this whole, oh, well, do you have to impeach first and all of that? Well, then here's the judge again. I asked you a yes or no, yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There is a political process that would have to occur. Once you concede that presidents can be prosecuted, under some circumstances, your separation of powers argument falls away. And here's how the Republican appointed judge on the panel called Trump's team out. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal laws. I mean, she did put it so so clearly. It's almost as if when you say it that way. But since Trump's team was talking about a, a murder today, a hypothetical murder, it's actually worth recalling something Trump said a long time ago. Something he said almost as a joke that was, at its heart, even then, deadly serious. 
I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? And so here we are, eight years later, Trump's lawyers in court arguing that even if he had ordered a murder of a political rival while president, he would be immune from prosecution unless he'd been impeached and removed from office by Congress. As an American citizen, this is a stunning argument to hear. Out front now, Evan Perez. And Evan, you were in the courtroom today for the oral argument, so you could see the former president there. I know you were sitting uh, uh, and you could see the back of him. The judges obviously were skeptical as we were playing part of what they said, but you heard all of it. So what happens next? Well, Aaron, uh, we have to wait to see whether this, uh, how this uh, three-judge panel rules. And one of the things that uh, John Sauer, Donald Trump's attorney, said near the end of of his presentation was, uh, if you rule against us, uh, we ask you that you put a stay on it so that we can continue appealing. That's uh, a nod to the strategy that the former president and his legal team have, which is to try to buy more time, to try to push back the date of this trial, which right now is still scheduled uh, for March 4th, but that is obviously very, very doubtful. The former president, as you pointed out, Aaron, did not have to be there today. Uh, he uh, was with, gave rapt attention, really, to the, the three-judge panel. He listened to their to their questions, and then when the government uh, began their presentation, James Pierce, who uh, works on special counsel uh, Jack Smith's uh, team, uh, he started writing notes, furiously writing notes, passing on, passing them on to uh, his attorney, John Sauer. Now, we don't know whether Sauer any, took any of those notes and, and actually made any presentations on it. Near the end of his presentation, he did say, uh, wanted to re- reiterate that he believed that uh, what the former president is accused of, everything that he's accused of happened while he was in office, sort of motioning to Donald Trump. The, the former president uh, nodded, again, very visibly. It, it gives you a sense of, of why he was there, which was to see with his own eyes, to see what these uh, what these judges uh, were going to say and look it's very clear that they expect that this is not going to go their way but the whole goal here is to try to delay this trial perhaps into beyond the election Aaron thank you very much Evan and also as you point out crucial that you know how intimately he is involved and that he chose to be there that he he does on some level grasp the gravity of it beyond obviously seeing the television you know seizing the television cameras outside the room uh, that he grasped the gravity on some level All right, Evan, thank you very much. So now let's go, as promised, to Ty Cobb, the former Trump White House lawyer. So, Ty, let's just start off with with where you stood on this prior to the arguments we heard today. You and more than a dozen other lawyers and former government officials signed a friend of the court briefing, Namicus Curiae, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and you all argue against Trump's immunity claim. So did anything that you heard today from Trump's attorney change your mind? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, in, in fact, I think you know Trump may have approached this hearing with some optimism and attended with interest, but I think his lawyers knew that you know today would be a fateful day. Uh, their legal arguments and constitutional arguments were largely specious. Uh, I think that came out today. They basically abandoned, I think, as, as Judge Pan uh, carefully extracted the concession that they had to make uh, based on the law and the and the Constitution, that the only real argument they have, they, they no longer have the argument that he's absolutely immune because they have conceded uh, that under certain circumstances he could be p- prosecuted uh, for even uh, official acts. And they've also conceded um, on the double jeopardy argument. Uh, all they have left is the fig leaf um, of a negative uh, inference 
from the impeachment judgment clause, which makes plain that if he is impeached and convicted, he's also subject to uh, criminal jurisdiction and prosecution. Um, there's it's silent as to you know a president who's um, impeached and not convicted. It's silent as to presidents who are not impeached. Um, clearly, there is no guidance in the Constitution that provides the immunity that right. they have asked for, and I think that ruling will come uh, fast and forcefully. So the the judges did express skepticism, all three of them. Uh, you know, you mentioned Judge Pan. Uh, she said Trump's argument, uh, quote, falls away, right, when you lay out these the context of impeachment. Judge Henderson called it paradoxical. And I thought the way she really laid it out, it's sort of one of those eureka moments. Okay. She put that really clearly, <laughs> right? How can you? Yes. I, no, I, yeah. she, she definitely did. I mean, her point that, you know, it's, it's hard for me to understand how you're saying his duty to faithfully execute the laws somehow allows him to be a criminal. Right. I mean, it, 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 it is nonsensical in that sense. Just sort of the way she put it uh, was, was, was quite beautifully said. Um, but also, Ty, you know, I, again, I was just sitting here as a citizen, like anybody else watching, to hear the argument made in a courtroom that there's a situation where a president can order the murder of his political rival, right, through SEAL Team 6, and that that would be okay, uh, you know, if he hadn't been impeached for it, is a bit jarring. It, it stopped me in my tracks because they made it with great seriousness. And because of that, I guess it put into context a bit, perhaps, some of the things that Trump has said about the world leader's he most admires like these. President Xi is a brilliant man. How smart is Kim Jong-un? Top of the line. Putin, very smart. We know how those uh, leaders and regimes behave uh, when you talk about political rivals, just as one example. And we've been told, Ty, so many times not to take Trump literally. But in this moment, and it is a grave moment, would it be a mistake not to? I think you have to take Trump seriously because he poses the gravest threat to democracy that we've ever seen. Uh, on the other hand, I think his legal arguments are, um, you know, interposed solely for delay. Um, I think as the government's lawyer or the special counsel's lawyer argued today, um, that um, at the end of the day, it would be very scary if there's no accountability, as Trump's counsel has argued. Um, for the types of conduct that have been charged here when a president uh, tries to prevent the um, peaceful transfer of power and uses the levers available to him to subvert the Democratic Republic and the electoral system. Um, I think the um, you know, lack of accountability that he desires, uh, which Putin has, the Ayatollah has, Xi has, um, as you, as you um, allude to, um, you know, I think that he may want an America that, that, that is like that. But the founders, when they crafted the Constitution, tried desperately uh, and dutifully uh, to make it plain that this was not going to be a country where we had a king. This was going to be a country where we had an accountable executive. All right, Ty, thank you, as always. And I want to go to David Axelrod now, the former senior advisor to President Obama, joining me from Des Moines tonight, just six days before those Iowa caucuses. So, David, as you hear all this, what did you take away from a political perspective of the chicken and egg argument that we heard from Trump's attorney in court today, that a president can't be prosecuted for crimes in office unless the president's already been impeached and we just run around and around in that circle? 
Yeah, and you remember, Aaron, that the argument that was made when there was an impeachment was that, no, we can wait and let the courts handle this. So, uh, you know, this is a shifting uh, scenario here. Uh, but look, um, you know, on the substance of it, uh, it is it is frightening to hear uh, a, a president's lawyers make the argument that he can do virtually anything, including murder, uh, and have immunity uh, for it. When you have the president out there promising uh, retribution, talking about the execution, uh, the, you know, executing the former uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that you know, it, it is disturbing. As a practical political matter, you were raising the question before about why would he show up. I've said for a long time, you know, in the 19th century, we had front porch campaigns. This for Trump, at least in the short term, is going to be a courthouse uh, steps campaign. He thinks that there's political value in showing up at the court because yeah. for his base, his aroused base, uh, they believe that he's being persecuted and targeted for political reasons. This is his perverse perversion of the democracy argument. So I, I think he does it for show. I think that's why he shows up. He thinks it benefits him politically. And, and you know what's interesting? I mean, you're in Des Moines, right? Six days away from the, the, the votes. He's not. And, 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 and obviously we hear your, your explanation as to probably why that is. And yet it does show an incredible confidence that the polls, which he, you know, expresses such disdain for, that he believes them to be right. He believes himself to be in in such a strong position without uncertainty there. Yeah, I guess he's coming back, you know, to do a town hall uh, tomorrow. I, I think that uh, they should be confident. I've talked to people in all the campaigns, and I, I think there's a broad consensus that he's going to win tomorrow and probably by more, uh, I'm sorry, tomorrow, next Monday, right. and probably by more. More than a little. Uh, but, you know, there's always, and especially with caucuses, you and on a very chilly night, which is what's forecast for Des Moines, there's always concern about who shows up. A lot of his supporters are in rural areas where they have to drive 10 or 15 miles uh, to, to participate in the caucuses. So he wants an aroused uh, base going into this, these, these uh, caucuses. And he may believe that uh, uh, showing up at the courthouse today and emphasizing the things he's emphasized uh, will, will help light that fire under yeah. that base to come out at the caucuses. All right. Well, thank you very much. And of course, uh, we'll see you tomorrow ahead of that uh, debate, uh, of course, uh, here on CNN. Thank you, David. And next, Thanks, investigators trying to find the four bolts that held the door plug in place on that terrifying Alaska Airlines flight. A woman who was there and sat next to a teen whose shirt had been sucked out of the plane and almost was sucked out himself, from what we understand, is my guest next. And Nikki Haley is continuing to rise, and Trump is taking notice. If Nikki Haley got away, most seniors would work their entire lives. How real is her surge? Plus, breaking news, new court documents revealing Jeffrey Epstein pleaded the fifth hundreds of times, including to questions about Bill Clinton and the magician David Copperfield. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Tonight, federal investigators are looking for four bolts that were critical to securing the door plug that blew off the Atlanta, uh, the Alaska flight. Those bolts could lie at the center of the cause of that huge chunk ripping from the plane. It was flying at 16,000 feet and 177 people were on board. And what is incredibly disturbing about this, even now, is that the NTSB cannot say if the bolts were ever even installed on the plane in the first place. Tom Foreman is out front with this first report. An astonishing question raised by federal investigators. Could it be that the plug which burst free of that Alaska Airlines plane forcing an emergency landing was not properly locked into place? After all, the National Transportation Safety Board has the plane, the plug, and lots of other evidence, but... We have not yet recovered the four bolts uh, that restrain it from its vertical movement. And we have not yet determined if they existed there. That will be determined when we take the plug to our lab in Washington, D.C. While such plugs are not normal doors, each can be opened somewhat like a door for maintenance, according to this website by a former 737 pilot. As it shows in this photo here, they, they hinge, uh, they open outwards and hinge downwards. Two bolts at the top and two at the bottom are supposed to prevent that. But the holes that would have held those bolts, aviation experts note, show no signs of tearing or stress. There's no apparent damage to the uh, to the inside frame. And both Alaska and United say their inspections of plugs after the incident revealed loose hardware on other Boeing 737 MAX 9s. Ed Pearson is a former Boeing employee turned sharp critic. It's completely unacceptable to leave uh, loose bolts or, or anything like that. So if one person makes a mistake, they might make a mistake on another plane and another plane. This is really disturbing. Four times in the past two months, pressurization warnings appeared on the jet involved. The last just a minute before the plug flew out, causing explosive depressurization. At least it wasn't cruising at 30,000 feet, says the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. Folks don't have seatbelts on. Uh, they're going to uh, restrooms. The flight attendants are providing service to passengers. We could have end up with, ended up with something so much more tragic and we're really fortunate that that did not occur here. Authorities say nobody was actually seated right next to the part where this plane blew open this way, so there is that. But amid the seriousness of all of this, Boeing held a staff-wide safety meeting today in which the CEO pledged they would fully and transparently cooperate with all of the investigation. And he said, Boeing is acknowledging its mistake. But what exactly that mistake is, we don't yet know. Aaron? No, we don't. What a miracle no one was sitting in that seat. Yeah. Tom, thank you. 
As we learn those new details about the loose bolts found on MAX 9 Boeing planes, we're also hearing the remarkable story of a woman who was seated three rows in front of the huge hole in the Alaska flight. When a teenage boy just jumped into the empty seat next to her, and this boy, his shirt was ripped off from the force of the wind. The boy had been sitting at the window seat just in front of the door plug when it blew out of the plane. And that passenger, Kelly Bartlett, is out front now. And Kelly, I really appreciate your, your being willing to talk to me and, and, and relive this uh, extremely traumatic experience that you had. Um, but this moment is incredible. You hear this extremely loud boom. A chunk is ripped from the plane. You're sitting just in front of it. So maybe you're trying to figure out what happened. And this teenage boy jumps into the seat next to you. His shirt's off, ripped off. I mean, can you tell me more about exactly what happened? Yeah, it was crazy. It was just so scary when it happened because you just hear that loud noise. Um, and then the plane filled with wind and the mask dropped. And it was just something you don't want to be experiencing on flight. So it was chaos for a few minutes while everyone was putting their masks on and you know something's wrong, but you don't know exactly what. We didn't know how serious it was. Like I said, I was sitting in front of the hole, so it was behind me and I didn't know what was happening. And so it wasn't until later that we started putting all these pieces together to figure out why this person had jumped into the empty seat, why he had no shirt on and what had been happening. So it was definitely a scary moment. I mean, so this this kid, a teenager, jumps in next to you, his shirt's ripped off. I mean, at this point, I mean, you're, you become even more terrified, right, as you're trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, one can only imagine. And then, Kelly, though, you do something, um, incredible presence of mind, but also giving all of us an, just a, a brief moment of understanding what you were going through. It was so loud that you couldn't hear a thing, even if you were screaming. I mean, just, I don't know, for some reason that brings this alive to me. Uh, and so you take your phone and use the notes app to communicate with the teenager. Um, it's so right. you're, you're basically yeah. writing to him. So tell me about that. Yes. Well, I mean, I kind of wanted to figure out what was going on. And when I looked over my shoulder, I saw a hole in the wall. And from my view, the seats were obstructing the bottom part of the wall. So I only could see the top. And I thought it was just the window. So I thought just the window had blown out. And um, I figured that was where he came from. And I asked him on my note, because like you said, we couldn't talk. We had our masks on, plus the plane was very loud. So I asked him, are you hurt? Because I assumed that was where he came from. And I said, were you sitting there? And just through a little bit of chat, it wasn't much at all. But he told me that he was okay physically. I was worried. I was really worried. Um, but he told me he was okay physically. We kind of gave each other a thumbs up to, to let, let each other know that it was okay for the moment. I mean, we were safe. We were buckled in. We had our masks on. And at that point, there was nothing else to do. It was really great that he got, he and his mom got away from that row and had other places to sit for the descent. I mean, it's incredible. You know, you, as you share, he wrote, that was unbelievable. My name is Jack, by the way. Thanks for your kindness. I mean, showing in him an incredible presence of mind to be able to yeah. respond yeah, was, to you in that was, moment. I mean, he almost died. His shirt was ripped off. And the Seattle Times spoke exclusively with his mother. And she tells them uh, that she saw his seat twisting backward toward the hole. She saw his seat headrest mm -hmm. ripped off and sucked off into the void. She sees her son's arms jerked mm -hmm. upwards. So she, I mean, she could think her child's about to be sucked out of the plane. And then she tells him she reached over. She grabbed his body. She's pulling him towards her, uh, filled with yeah. adrenaline as I've ever been in my life. I mean, I'm sure she struggles to even find the words that this is, yeah, this is what had just happened. Yeah. Right. I, I know. And I couldn't imagine being in that situation. That's why I didn't write very much and he didn't either because honestly, our adrenaline was both so high. 
It was super scary. Um, nobody could really find the right words. There just really are no adequate words to describe, you know, the terror that you're feeling. And I cannot imagine what his mom must have been feeling like in that moment. So, oh. I mean, I was just glad to know that he was safe. His mom was safe, seated, and we just needed to get back down on the ground. That was it. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. And next, is Nikki Haley the new Ron DeSantis? Because right now she is in Trump's crosshairs. He is zeroing in on her. So what is behind her surge in the polls? And is it really possible that she could beat Trump in New Hampshire? Or is that a lot of talk? And the Pentagon announcing Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is being treated for prostate cancer as the explanation for his secretive hospital visits. But even that was news to the White House. Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning. Tonight, threatened. Former President Trump slamming Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley as she rises in the polls. If Nikki Haley got away, most seniors would work their entire lives right up until the end and then not live long enough to receive the benefits they earned and paid for. Of course, it's very different than what she's proposing, but it comes as a new CNN poll shows Haley surging in New Hampshire, rising 12 points from CNN's November poll and cutting Trump's lead to single digits. Kristen Holmes is out front. Hello, Iowa, and a very, very happy new year. Days out from the Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump and his team are ramping up attacks on GOP rival Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has been in the pocket of the open borders establishment donors her entire career. During campaign stops in Iowa, leveling his sharpest attacks on Haley to date. She's a globalist, you know, she likes the globe. I like America first. Haley recently said Iowa voters will need to be corrected by other states. Now, I don't know if that's, look, I don't know. But it doesn't seem nice, right? Quote, all the lame nicknames in the world don't change the fact that Donald Trump is clearly terrified of Nikki Haley's momentum. Haley's communication director said in a statement, Haley has seen a rise in poll numbers in both Iowa and New Hampshire. It is six days till caucus. We have been waiting for this. While Trump maintains a sizable lead in Iowa, a new CNN poll shows Haley has trimmed Trump's lead to single digits in New Hampshire. The former president has tried to diminish her rising poll numbers. That's because it's fake. But his team is clearly taking her seriously. While they've stopped spending money on ads attacking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump's campaign and the super PACs supporting the former president are spending a combined $4.5 million targeting Haley in television ads. MAGA Inc. alone spending $1.3 million a week in New Hampshire, slamming the former South Carolina governor on immigration. Last week, the campaign targeted Haley on the same message. Get Haley and Biden oppose Trump's border wall. Haley hitting back. Just because President Trump says something doesn't make it true. He's taking snippets of things I said. I said you shouldn't just do the border wall. You have to do more than that. That's what I said. A Trump advisor told CNN they will continue to go after her on immigration, as they believe it's a top issue in the Granite State. Trump has complained both privately and publicly about Haley, who served as ambassador to the United Nations under his administration, calling her disloyal. Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. Haley, for her part, has also sharpened her attacks on the former president. Chaos follows him. 
And we all know that's true. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. And you don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And Aaron, I am told that Trump's campaign has also been closely monitoring internal polling that has Haley rising in Iowa as well. A senior Trump campaign advisor insisting to me today that their strategy has not changed. They say that Donald Trump has always said he would set his sights on whoever is in second place. And now that appears to be Nikki Haley. Aaron. All right. Thank you very much, Kristen. So now let's go beyond the numbers with Harry. Enton. In case anybody needs to know your, ah, you know, I think you're you. a one namer now. Okay. Can someone come back? Well, first of all, she has surged. We talked about the 12 point yeah. surge, right? So the surge in recent weeks has been dramatic. Yeah. But right now, seven point poll deficit uh, in New Hampshire, two weeks to go to the primary. Has anyone closed that gap? Absolutely. In fact, there are four examples through history that we can list out for you that closed that gap. So you go back to 1984, Gary Hart did it. You go back to 1996, Pat Buchanan did it. But, of course, there were also two future nominees who did it. John Kerry was way behind Howard Dean at this point in 2004 in New Hampshire. And John McCain was well behind Mitt Romney in 2008 in New Hampshire. And mm. both of them went on to be the nominee. So the answer to your question is 100% absolutely Nikki Haley can close that gap in New Hampshire and maybe go on to win nationally as well. Okay, so who is fueling her rise in New Hampshire? Yeah, so if you know one thing about New Hampshire, it's that independents play a major role in that primary, perhaps more so than any of the other early voting states. Yep. And what we see is among Republicans, in fact— Nikki Haley is still well behind Donald Trump. But if you look among independents, look at that. She's up by 35 points. She's down 23 points among Republicans. And I will point out, Aaron, this sort of way of doing things, winning with independents in New Hampshire, has worked before for a number of folks who went on to win New Hampshire. So if you look back in 1984, you saw Gary Hart. He was able to win because of independents. He outperformed what he did with Democrats by 22 points. You look in 2000, John McCain outperformed what he did among Republicans by 47 points with independents. So right. the fact is, Using independence in New Hampshire, it does work to fuel a victory there. Right. And and as you point out, when you show Gary Hart, you also show John McCain, who did go on to win. And that's the real question. Now, in Iowa, it was interesting out there last week. I, you know, you can register as a Republican up until caucus day and vote, but you got to register right. and you got to be a Republican. And obviously, in New Hampshire, it is extremely different. So which has a better record at predicting the eventual nominee? Iowa, where you got to register as a Republican, or New Hampshire, where obviously independents play this outsized role? The answer is New Hampshire on the Republican side. In fact, there are only two examples of Republicans who won Iowa and lost New Hampshire, went on to be the nominee, Dole in 96, and Bush in 2000. And the thing I should also point out is, you know, polling isn't the only metric where we see that Nikki Haley is doing very well in New Hampshire. We see it in Google searches as well. There are a lot of people who are interested in Nikki Haley, searching for her. She has twice as many searches in New Hampshire than she does in Iowa, and five times as many in New Hampshire as nationally. Right. And obviously, right now, that is that says so much. Okay, Harry, thank you very much. Thank you. And next, the Pentagon announcing that the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is being treated for prostate cancer. But a journalist who has long covered Austin and many other defense secretaries says it's time for him to go. And breaking news, Jeffrey Epstein pleading the fifth hundreds of times, hundreds in newly released court documents. His outfront looks at how Epstein actually built his fortune. Where the heck did he come from? How did he get in those powerful social circles? Special report coming up.
Tonight, the Pentagon finally announcing why Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had two secretive stays in the hospital, revealing that he was hospitalized on December 22nd for a procedure to treat prostate cancer. A hospitalization Austin did not inform the White House or his own deputy about at the time, despite being under general anesthesia. The Pentagon also now confirming that when Austin returned to the hospital in an ambulance in severe pain on January 1st, he was diagnosed with a urinary tract infection. And obviously, of course, you know, he, he, he stayed in for, for many days. Now, again, Austin did not tell the White House about it. And the White House revealing, in fact, that it only found out that the Defense Secretary of the United States had prostate cancer today. Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning. And the president was informed immediately after. Significant there, John Kirby not trying to mince words or anything, just putting the facts out there. Out front now, Fred Kaplan, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and national security columnist for Slate. He's covered the Pentagon and Secretary Austin extensively. He published an op-ed before today's news titled, Why the Secretary of Defense's Mysterious Disappearance Means He Needs to Go. And, uh, you know, I think everyone can read a lot of your reasoning there in that, Fred. But um, does anything change your mind that we've I mean, this was before today when you found out that the the White House only found out about his diagnosis of cancer today. Well, I think it solidifies this view. I mean, look, we're on the verge of war in a couple of different theaters, you know, deployed aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean. They're to be used, possibly. If the president wants to give an order to the combatant commander in the Middle East or any place to use offensive force, that order goes through the Secretary of Defense. If there is a a, a senior meeting of the the cabinet-level officials in the National Security Council, the Secretary of Defense represents the entire Department of Defense. If he's not going to be there, you know, that's fine. He has a medical whatever. There are procedures for notifying the Deputy Secretary of Defense. The deputy was called on vacation in Puerto Rico to say you're going to have to assume some of his duties without being told why, without being told he was in the hospital. Right. And she's on vacation. She's on vacation. Which, I mean, I mean if totally... she knew he was in the hospital, he's under anesthesia, she probably would have got on a plane and come back. So, right. And now we learn just today that the president didn't even know why he was in the hospital. I mean, I don't think he can be trusted. It sounds like he was trying to save his job. He was, he was keeping vital strategically important information from the president, from the deputy national security advisor, from the national security advisor, uh, perhaps to save his own skin. It's unclear why, but in any event, I don't see how trust in him can be I mean, it's incredible. So just to be clear, the president learns Austin was in the hospital days after, right? Well, he never knew. December 22nd, he goes in for a prostate procedure. So obviously he had a diagnosis of cancer well before that. that. Didn't know about that at all. Never knew about that. Then he goes back in the hospital with a severe pain. He forced to go in in an ambulance. On the first. President finds out on the fourth. Okay. But then John Kirby admits. And then, okay, then they have a conversation. Biden and he finally have a conversation. Oh, that, a cordial that, conversation. But this is the other thing. And he doesn't tell him he has that, prostate cancer. Right. Bizarre. One other thing worth noting. He was nominated to be Secretary of Defense because he and Biden had had a previous relationship, a fairly close relationship. And, and that's fine. But we're in the middle of a bunch of crises. Yeah. The president doesn't even know the Secretary of Defense is missing in action for four days. In other words, he hasn't got on the phone with the Secretary of Defense. It shows that he's not really an essential player. 
If he was an essential player, like, I can't get rid of him. He's a vital member of my team. He's involved and in he everything. And he wouldn't be able to disappear for four days. Well, that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, well, that's a layer, of an important layer that you point out. All right, Fred, thank you very much. Sure. I hope everyone will read. As you say, it only solidifies your point of view. But again, your op-ed uh, on Slate, why the Secretary of Defense's uh, mysterious disappearance means he needs to go. Thank you so much. Thank you. And next, the breaking news. We have the new court documents just released on Jeffrey Epstein, who went from being a math teacher with no college degree to the center of really one of the most elite social scenes on this planet. How? How? We have a special report tonight. And armed men interrupting a live TV broadcast, taking hostages. What and where? Breaking news, the fifth and last batch of court documents related to sex offender Jeffrey Epstein just have been released. And Epstein pleads the fifth hundreds of times. Former Presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump are both mentioned numerous times again. Now, Gene Casares has been going through these new pages and joins me now. And Gene, now you've been through every single thing that has been released. I mean, what are you finding in this latest batch? 5,000 pages yeah. have been released. But what is brand new is the deposition of Jeffrey Epstein, the actual deposition. He states his name, but then for the next five hours, he pleads the fifth. And so because of that, we really don't know what he answered, but we do know some questions. There were many questions to him about sexual abuse, right, of him, but also many questions about Bill Clinton. And he was asked, here's an example. When Bill Clinton came to your island, he was accompanied by two young women, approximately 18 years old, right? His response, fifth. And then, now we do want to say that Bill Clinton has never been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing. As people have always said, yes, he was on the plane. He was never on the island. And Virginia Dufre, in her own deposition, actually said that she was not aware at all that former President Bill Clinton or Donald Trump engaged in any any types of sexual abuse crimes. Now, David Copperfield was also mentioned in all of this. Here's a question that was posed to um, Epstein about David Copperfield. Based on everything I know in this case, the attorney says, it would seem logical that you provided girls under the age of 18 to David Copperfield for sexual purposes. Am I missing something or can I reach that conclusion? Fifth. Now, here's what's interesting. 30 pages of the deposition of Jeffrey Epstein remain sealed tonight. They are still sealed in that veil of secrecy. Much of convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's life remains a mystery, from how he accumulated his multi-million dollar fortune to how he developed ties to incredibly influential people. Could you please give us your name? Jeffrey Epstein. From former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, Actor Kevin Spacey, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, magician David Copperfield, Google co-founder Sergey Brin, and even Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Epstein associated with an elite circle. He owned lavish properties in Manhattan, Palm Beach, Florida, New Mexico, Paris, and a private island in the Caribbean, according to court filings. He also owned at least 15 vehicles and had access to two private jets. Born in Brooklyn to working-class parents, he actually never received a college degree. But that didn't stop him from getting a job teaching mathematics at the prestigious Dalton School in New York City. It was there he tutored the daughter of Bear Stearns chairman Alan Greenberg and wound up getting a job at the investment bank. There he met billionaire Leslie Wexner, who ran L Brands and Victoria's Secret, 
And Epstein not only became his money advisor, but was given power of attorney over finances. In the 80s, Epstein began operating his own money management firms. In the early 90s, Ghislaine Maxwell, a British socialite, would become Epstein's lifelong companion. For years, the pair would host billionaires, politicians, and celebrities. But in 2005, Epstein was accused of paying a 14-year-old girl for sex and was criminally charged in 2006. Epstein was charged with Florida state prostitution crimes. He pleaded guilty in 2008, served 13 months in a jail work release program, and registered as a sex offender. Despite his criminal conviction, Epstein and Maxwell continued to mingle with the rich and famous and continued to recruit young girls for massages, a code word for sexual services, according to court documents. But 11 years later, Epstein's legal troubles caught up with him again. Wexner wrote that Epstein, quote, misappropriated vast sums of money from Wexner and his family more than a decade ago, over $46 million, according to the Wall Street Journal. Jeffrey Epstein. And in July 2019, a federal indictment charged Epstein with sex trafficking and conspiracy to commit sex trafficking. Epstein is alleged to have abused dozens of victims by causing them to engage in sex acts with him at his mansion in New York and at his estate in Palm Beach, Florida. While awaiting trial in New York, Epstein died by suicide, denying justice for his victims and leaving so many questions forever unanswered. And in the last five days, we have brought you what we know from those unsealed documents. Here's what we don't know. We don't know who the actual clients were that participated in sexual abuse of girls. And that is the most incredible thing, uh, that what we still don't know and whether we, we will ever know that. Thank you so much, Jean. And next, the incredible video of armed men storming a television station in a string of potentially coordinated attacks. We'll tell you what we know. Tonight, Ecuador's president declaring a, quote, internal armed conflict in the country. There was a stunning incident in which gunmen took over a live television broadcast. Incredibly violent. Viewers were stunned. They actually watched it. The men forcing the station staff onto the floor, hearing shots in the background. It is the latest in a string of violent incidents unfolding after a national state of emergency was declared after the escape of a notorious gang leader from prison. Since then, another gang leader has escaped from a different prison. And the situation is deteriorating, largely driven by rival criminal organizations battling to control drug trafficking routes. And as our David Culver reported out front last night, Ecuador is a central part of a massive underground operation that is smuggling immigrants illegally into the United States of America along that southern border. Thanks so much for joining us. AC360 starts now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.